Okay, good to see you here at the EU public meeting. Glad you could come and join us today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to vote. Not anything as important as our federal election coming up, but nevertheless, an opportunity to vote is an opportunity to have your say. I want you to vote and get two votes. Uh, your favourite cities in the world. In all the world. Okay. Favourite cities in all the world. You get two votes. Who votes for Paris? A whole three people. Four people. Paris is a pretty cool city. I've had the fortune to go there on a maths junket when I was a postgraduate student, would you believe? Um, yes, there are such things. There's got to be some pluses of doing advanced mathematical study. <laughs> that was one of them. Um, Paris is pretty cool, but that's not many votes. Uh, uh, New York. Oh, a few more. How about London? I can't believe you vote for London. I mean, it's nice, but really, it's a bit trash, you know. Uh, what about Rome? Oh, yes, come on, Rome, that's right. What about Florence? Milan? Any city at all in Italy? I'd vote for that. What about Canberra? Oh, our nation's capital. Such disrespect. How about Singapore? Tokyo? Yes! Oh, I let me tell you today, as we look at the book of Isaiah, we meet a particular city in this section of the book of Isaiah, a city that really is like no other. It is the most amazing city in all of human history. The most amazing city in all of human history. I'm speaking, of course, about the city of Jerusalem. Now, I don't know if you've, anyone here ever been to Jerusalem? Not many of us have, in fact, no one in the room today. But uh, we know a fair bit about Jerusalem just from the media and what you see and what you read. That might strike you as somewhat um, surprising that Jerusalem would be the most amazing city in all the history of the world. But uh, by looking at God's Word here in the book of Isaiah, I have to show you in what way that is true. And astoundingly true, and I hope at the end of our time here, you're so, so grateful for the one true living God that it is true. That's why I'm hoping today. Anyway. So if you've got your Bible there, it'd be really helpful to open it up. You might like to take some notes. I'm going to try and do a crazy thing today, slightly crazy. I'm going to try to draw the talk as I do it. This is like a talk, talk gone crazy. Um, so apologies to those who are listening on MP3. You really miss out this way. Um, but anyway, maybe you won't miss out at all, actually, depending on how it goes. <laughs> but what you'll see from the book of Isaiah, if you turn to chapter 1, verse 1, you'll see that in lots of ways the, the book of Isaiah, the prophecy of Isaiah, is really the story of the one true living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Isaiah is the story of the one true living God and his city, the city of Jerusalem. And from chapter 1, verse 1, it's right there. You'll see there's the prophecy that came by the prophet Isaiah concerning Judah and Jerusalem. 
right there from the very first verse of the very first chapter, Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation of Judah, is in view. And that theme continues right the way through the book. Now, at the end of last semester, we came to the end of chapter 39. And uh, just before that, in chapters 36 and 37, Jerusalem had been miraculously, there's no other word for it, miraculously delivered from the hand of the Assyrians, the great superpower at the time, who were threatening the city, and God delivered the city of Jerusalem in an astounding deliverance. That was chapters 36 and 37. And in lots of ways, that was a mountaintop moment. Here's our prophet Isaiah. He's got a beard, so he's obviously a prophet of God. So he has no eyes. Not for any particular reason, I just haven't drawn them. Anyway, here's Isaiah on that mountaintop moment of the deliverance of the city of Jerusalem from the hand of the Assyrians. However, in the very next two chapters, chapters 38 and 39, we're given a bit of a window, a prophetic insight into the future of the city of Jerusalem. And you might remember from last week, it's a dark future. It's an ominous picture that he sees in this prophetic vision because he's told by the Lord, the city of Jerusalem, whilst it's just been delivered, the city of Jerusalem is actually going to get overrun and its inhabitants are going to go into exile. Not in Hezekiah, the current king's lifetime, some future time, but that is what's going to happen. Now that's terrible, right? Because Jerusalem has just been delivered from that sort of fate. But now here comes a prophecy, actually it will happen, but it won't be the Assyrians do it, it'll be the Babylonians at some future time. So if you like, there's a vision, not a happy one, of a time when Jerusalem will be in ruins. That's Jerusalem, in ruins. Jerusalem is sometimes called Zion. Why? Well, because the city of Jerusalem was built on top of Mount Zion. So sometimes it's called Zion, sometimes it's called Jerusalem, completely interchangeable. The vision that's given is that Jerusalem will be, will be taken over and God's people will go into exile at some point in time in the future. There's a pretty dark note, isn't it? It's a terrible future to be looking at. What we see in chapters... So that's Isaiah 39. What we see in chapters 40 through 66, the rest of the book, is the vision that Isaiah is given, uh, which really is a message to God's people when they are experiencing this terrible exile. That's the rest of the book, if you like. So what we're going to do, try and do today is trace this really important theme of Zion or Jerusalem through chapters 40 to 66 to see what God has to say about his city that's going to go into exile. That's what we're going to look at. So if you've got your Bible there, we'll share with the person next to you. We're going to look at a few different places. We're going to start by looking at uh, chapter 49. So turn up to Isaiah 49. Let's get a bit of a picture here. Isaiah 49, verses 14 to 18. What do we see here? The question really you can ask, Lord, if this is the future for the city of Jerusalem, you have to ask, what is God doing? Has God forgotten his people? 
So have a look at chapter 49, verse 14. But Zion says, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. It's an understandable reaction, right? If your people have got taken into exile and you've been overrun by the enemy. How does the Lord respond? Verse 15. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Your children hasten back, and those who laid you waste depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around. All your children gather and come to you. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, you will wear them all as ornaments. You will put them on like a bride. So what's the Lord's answer to this question? Has the Lord forgotten his people? His answer is no way. In fact, he says... He says, I can't forget you because your name is engraved on my palms. How can I forget you if your name's engraved there, tattooed onto my palms? I can't forget you. In fact, and what does he promise? What he promises is another future. He says, no, no, you're those who went into exile... Your children, you know, going off into exile, your children will come back. They will return. That's the first little thing he says. They may go into exile, yes, but I've not forgotten you, they will return. What else does he have to say? We'll flip forward to chapter 51. Chapter 51, verse 17. Let's have a look what he says here. What else does he have to say? 51:17. Awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, you who have drained to its dregs the goblet that makes people stagger. Among all the children she bore, there was none to guide her. Among all the children she brought up, there was none to take her by the hand. These double calamities have come upon you. Who can comfort you? Ruin and destruction, famine and sword. Who can console you? Your children have fainted. They lie at every street corner like antelope caught in a net. They are filled with the wrath of the Lord, with the rebuke of your God. This is his explanation of how come, if the Lord hasn't forgotten them and the Lord has this great future, how come they've experienced his exile? Well, his answer is... Because you have been drinking from the cup of my wrath. That's a cup, right? <laughs> Humor me. Go, oh yeah, of course it's a cup. I knew that. And he says, you guys have drained it to its very dregs. The cup of my wrath. You've drunk it, in fact, and it's made you stagger, not because of its alcoholic content, because my wrath is so potent. But let's read on what he says there. I'm still in chapter 51, I'm now up to verse 21. Therefore hear this, you afflicted one, made drunk but not with wine. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God who defends his people 
See, I have taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. He says, so actually, your experience of my wrath, that's come to an end. Here's a word of promise for you. That's come to an end, and I'm going to, you, you've drained everything out of it, and in fact, you are never going to have to drink from this ever again. You will never experience my wrath as my city ever again. So this, never again. Okay? So that's his explanation of what's going on and a promise that it's a one-time only event. Okay, well let's keep going. Uh, we're up to chapter 52. Chapter 52, verses 2 to 9. Shake off your dust. And he's talking again to Zion here. Shake off your dust. Rise up. Sit enthroned, Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck. Daughter Zion, now a captive. For this is what the Lord says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. At first my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately Assyria has oppressed them. And now what do I have here, declares the Lord? For my people have been taken away for nothing. And those who rule them mock, declares the Lord. All day long my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore my people will know my name. Therefore in that day they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. He again, here's this promise. Not only will he redeem Jerusalem, who's gone away to captivity, but he actually says the Lord himself will come to Jerusalem. It's not just that the exiles will return. It's that the Lord himself, Yahweh, the one true living God, he himself will come to the city of Jerusalem. This is his promise. For his people who are going to go into exile. Now, it's worth um, thinking for a moment, what is the great significance of this? I mean, it's good news, right? If you are someone who's looking at the prospect of going into exile, knowing that the Lord's going to bring you back, that's good. Good outcome. That's comforting, and it's meant to be. However, there's something much more significant going on here in this story. And to see that, turn with me to, uh, we'll start with by chapter 51 again, but go back to verse 3. I want to draw out some of the language and imagery that is associated with this city of Zion or Jerusalem in these chapters, because in the, in the imagery and the illusions that are in this vision, you get some of the significance of just what's going on here. So chapter 51, verse 3, look what it says here. The Lord will surely comfort Zion and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden, her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. So when he says, what he says is here, the Jerusalem that's going to be redeemed, restored, he says that is going to be like Eden, the garden of Eden. So we're talking, you know, trees. And we're talking flowers. 
you can tell I was an art major at high school. Hey, and bushes. It's going to be like Eden. Now, Eden was pretty fantastic, the Garden of Eden. That's pretty amazing. He's going to say, this Jerusalem that I'm going to rebuild, it's going to be as good as Eden. Has there any, any time been anywhere like Eden? I mean, we're talking before the fall of humanity. That's astounding. That's what this city's going to be like. Then turn with me to chapter 54. He's going on this thing. Some of the other imagery and allusions. Talking again about Jerusalem. 54 verse 1. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who were never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. What's the imagery here about? Well, he's saying what you've got to do is take your tent. Here's your tent. He's likening Jerusalem to a tent. Right? And he's saying you've got to, you've got to stretch out its sides. You've got to strengthen its poles and its ropes. Like you're here at your tent saying, we gotta extend. <laughs> and why are you standing here at your tent saying we've got to extend? Why? From that text. Why? Don't look at me, look at the text. Lots of kids. Lots of kids because you've got too many little ones. <laughs> oh my goodness, look at them all. Man, we've got to extend. And he's saying, the new Jerusalem, it's going to be like a tent that you just, you've got to extend. Why? Because you've got so many kids. There's going to be so many of you. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament, just think for a moment. What have you just had in those verses? You've had a barren woman, a tent, and lots and lots of descendants. Is that ringing any bells for you? Who's that like? Sarah, right? So we're talking about Abraham and his wife Sarah. What's he saying? He's saying the promises, the great covenant promises made to Abraham, the father of the nation, that he would have so many descendants because of my covenant with him, that they would be more than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the seashore. That promise is going to be fulfilled in this city. The covenant with Abraham fulfilled in this city. The new Eden, the fulfilment of the promises to Abraham. Let's keep going in this chapter. Verse 4. He says, Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. What's the picture here? 
Well, the picture here is of a bride. See, she's happy. She's holding a little cozy or something. I'll give her some legs. Who he's likening the city of Jerusalem to a bride? Who is the husband in the text? Who is the husband? My goodness, the husband. Here's her other arm. <laughs> See, she's holding hands with. Yes! <laughs> the Lord, the one true living God Himself. This city of Jerusalem is going to be God's bride. That's how special this city is going to be in this unique relationship with the one true living God. Now the language here is interesting that God is called, the Lord is called the Redeemer. Where was the great moment of redemption in Israel's history up to this point in time? It was back at the Exodus, right? It was when God redeemed his people out of slavery in, uh, in, in, in Egypt. And so the allusions here are to that particular point in time, the time of Moses and the relationship that God established with his people in saving them and bringing them to Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, where the law was given, where God started to dwell with his people in the tabernacle. It's the covenant established with Moses at Sinai. That's the allusion here. Let's keep going in this chapter. Who knows what we'll find next? Verse 9. To me, says the Lord, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. So he likens it then... To a, to a covenant established at another mountain, if you like. There's my ark. I don't know what that is. Uh, there's my door. My mountain. And Noah. He says, this is like the days of Noah. Now, what happened in the days of Noah? Well, God brought judgment on his whole earth. And what he said at the end of that, when, when um, after the judgment was over, he established a covenant, that's the language that's used in Genesis 9, a covenant with all of creation. And the promise was, I will never again judge the earth and wipe out people via a flood like this. It was a, you know, this will never ever happen again. And what the Lord's saying here is, that covenant I made with Noah, well, what I'm promising now with this city of Jerusalem is like that. Never ever again will I do that. Because instead I'm going to establish my covenant of peace. My covenant of peace with you. Now that is a big promise. A covenant of peace. My wife likes to say when my children sometimes ask her, Mum, what would you like for 
uh, your birthday. She says, a bit of peace. <laughs> just get me a bit of peace. And we sometimes just think peace, yes, peace is just not fighting, peace is just, you know, peace is... No, no, in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, when you see peace, peace is massive. Peace is shalom. That notion not just of not, not arguing or, or, or quiet. No, it's the notion of that everything is as it ought to be under the hand and plans of God. A fulfilment of all of God's intentions, good intentions for his creation. That is peace. And what he's saying here is, I'm going to establish my covenant of peace with you. And he said that after going through Abraham and Moses and Noah. We've already had Eden back in chapter 51. So what's the picture here? The picture is all of God's intentions for his creation. All of his plans and good purposes. They are all going to come to climax and fruition in the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem stands at the centre of God's global and historic purposes. Because all these covenants with Noah, Abraham, Moses, with creation itself, are all met and fulfilled in my promises to this city, Jerusalem. Do you start to see why I say Jerusalem, it's unlike any other city. What other city stands at the, at the centre of God's purposes for the whole of the globe, throughout all of human history, only Jerusalem is the recipient of these sort of promises. And you have to say, when you just see all of that, surely your reaction has to be, wow, that is astounding. That is amazing. Well, and if that's not big enough, the Lord then ramps it up some more. He ratchets it up. Have a look there. Chapter 54. Just pick out two verses here. Verse 11. Afflicted city, lashed by storms and not com com not comforted. I will rebuild you with stones of turquoise, your foundations with lapis lazuli. I will make your battlements of rubies, your gates of sparkling jewels, all your walls of precious stones. Wow. So when he actually builds this city, where all these promises are going to take place, it is going to look incredible. The walls are going to be made of precious stones. <laughs> See, they look pretty precious, don't they? Like, have you ever seen a city like that? Built purely of precious stones? Wow, that's pretty, pretty astounding. Keep going to chapter 60. And I, earlier in the week, I, I read the whole chapter out, chapter 60, because it's so amazing, but we don't have time for that, really. But let me pick out a few verses here. Chapter 60, just the first couple of verses. Arise, shine, said to Zion, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises on you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises on you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. This city, the light over it, is going to be the glory of God himself. <laughs> the glory of God will shine over the city. As, that should uh, ring some bells for you too, because when God's people came out of Egypt, when he led them out as his redeemer, uh, out, he led them, remember, by a pillar, and uh, it was sort of a pillar of smoke by day and fire by night. 
and uh, the, sort of the glory of the Lord was with them. And then when he uh, instructed them to build the tabernacle, it was filled with the glory of God. And when they built the temple in the original Jerusalem, it was filled with the glory of God. He says, yes, the glory of God is going to fill the whole of the city. It's going to come over the whole of the city. And what's more, not just will my people return, not just will I come, but the nations of the world are going to flock in. And they're going to bring all their wealth with them. So you can see down there in the rest of that chapter, verse 6, herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah. Now, that's actually a good thing, herds of camels cover your land, right? They're not feral camels. But it is going to be amazing, this city, and they're all going to flock in. Uh, look, still in that chapter, maybe you look down to verse 19 to 21. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. So this city has no need of either a sun or a moon. Because the glory of God is going to be its light. Now, at this point, you say, okay, okay, I was following this, this is pretty good, but then the city's built with jewels, it doesn't need a sun or a moon. This isn't quite sounding like any city I know. Yeah, that's right. It's exalted language, isn't it? It's incredible. So we're going to have to try to wrestle. What does this actually mean? Okay. Now, let's just stop and now we'll sort of trace that through a little bit, through the book of Isaiah what he's promising about the city of Jerusalem. Let's actually stop and now, because we've got the benefit of we're not there back in you know, the 8th century BC. We're here in 2000 AD. And we know a little bit of history that's happened since that point of time. What Isaiah saw prophetically, we can actually look back with the eyes of history. What did actually happen? Let's trace out the fulfilment of these promises. Because God's people did indeed go into exile, didn't they? That promise was actually... That became reality. And you know what? They did actually return, just as God had promised. They did return. And they did rebuild Jerusalem. But you know what? Those who were there at the time, if you read sort of Ezra and Nehemiah, those who were there, what their comment on what was built was, it's not as good as it used to be. Instead of attaining to the glorious vision of Isaiah 40 66, the reality was actually less glorious than it was before it was taken over by the Babylonians. So that's a bit troubling, isn't it? How does the reality match up with the promise? Well, let's keep going with this because it gets even more troubling. See, we stand on the other side of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And because the Bible is progressive revelation, we know a lot more about God's plans and purposes than Isaiah could see. You are in a more privileged position than Isaiah. Maybe that's, that's hard to believe, but it's true. You, you have more access than he did to God's truth and actions in history. In particular, when the Lord Jesus Christ came, God incarnate, and he approached this physical city of Jerusalem, what was his comment? Well, in Luke 19, Luke, Luke 19, when Jesus approaches Jerusalem, 
here's Jesus coming to Jerusalem. His comment in Luke 19, or his reaction, is to cry, to weep. When Jesus, God incarnate, sees Jerusalem, he cries. Why does he cry? He says, if only you had recognised in Jerusalem the time of your visitation. Now, what's the time of visitation? Well, remember how the promise was that Yahweh himself, the one true living God, would come to the city? Well, here's Jesus saying, if only you'd recognised when that was happening, because it's happening right now. As I walk towards the city of Jerusalem, I, as God's son, God incarnate, walking towards Jerusalem, here is the moment of your, your visitation, and yet I know what you're going to do when I get there. What are you going to do? Are you going to worship your king? No. I know you are going to crucify me. You're going to kill the Lord when he comes. That's why he cries. Because he knows so low has Jerusalem sunk that he's actually going to kill the Lord when he comes. And so the Lord Jesus says, you know what? You are going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. So if anything, Jerusalem continues to decline. It declines even to the point of killing God's son. And then sure enough, in fulfilment of Jesus' promise, in AD 70, the Romans had their turn and they destroyed the temple and the city. Now, that's the reality of history. How does that fit with the exalted promise? How does that work? Well, the answer is, there are two Jerusalems. The answer is, there are two Jerusalems. There is the physical city of Jerusalem, and then there is what the New Testament calls the heavenly Jerusalem. There's the Jerusalem from below, and the Jerusalem from above. And you can see the different times in the New Testament. You might like to jot down some of these references. Uh, The first one is Galatians chapter 4, where the Apostle Paul talks about the two different Jerusalems. And he says, the Jerusalem from below is not actually the descendant of Abraham and Sarah. This is the, he actually says, Jerusalem from below is in slavery. It is the descendant of Hagar. He says, it's the Jerusalem from above that is the child of promise and it is free. He draws a distinction between the Jerusalem below, the physical Jerusalem, and this heavenly Jerusalem. Or another place you can see it is in Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, where in the prophecy that um, John, or the vision that uh, the Lord gives John, the apostle, he calls here Jerusalem, the physical Jerusalem, he likens that to the, the city of Sodom or of Egypt. Again, so I'm saying this is not God's city. This is actually... The opposite of God's city, this is the city which killed the Lord where he was crucified. So you see, the New Testament draws a distinction there between the physical city of Jerusalem and the heavenly Jerusalem. And so that's important for us because sometimes you'll see or hear of Christians who talk about the importance of the nation of Israel, the the, um, political nation of Israel, or the importance of Jerusalem, physical city of Jerusalem. It's just not true. If you read through the scriptures, the great promises about Jerusalem, we see in Isaiah, it's clear in the New Testament that those are not fulfilled and are not intended to be fulfilled in the physical city of Jerusalem. 
So that's important to us as we try to work out how the Bible meshes with political realities today. But secondly, there's something even more significant. Turn with me to uh, the book of Revelation. Flick with me and we'll end with this. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And my question to you is this. Was John, who received this vision, just having a bit of a bad day and was having trouble working out what to write down, that he just copy and pasted what Isaiah did? Because, well, just listen to this for a second. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. We've seen that. Beautifully dressed for her husband. And we'll go across to chapter 21, go to uh, verse 11 or 10. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. We've seen that. And its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates. And on he goes, he starts talking about the jewels with which it's built in verse 19. We've seen that. Or verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. We've seen that. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their splendour into it. We saw that. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there is no night there. That's in uh, Isaiah 60. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. We saw that. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does, not, does what is shameful or deceitful. The only, uh, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What's the point of all this? I want to point out to you that the, the exalted vision of Isaiah 46 about Jerusalem is there again at the end of the Bible. It's there again in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. That's significant for us as we stand on the same side of Jesus' death and resurrection as John here. And what he's saying to you is that, that vision of Isaiah is still the vision that you and I wait for. It was never fulfilled in the physical Jerusalem. There's two Jerusalems, and we still wait for this vision to be consummated, to be fulfilled. So what will it look like? Is he saying one day an actual city will descend out of heaven, dressed like a bride? <laughs> Where? No, he's not saying that literally there will be a city coming. No more than he's saying when you see Jesus, you will see... Him look, you'll see a sheep looking like it's been killed. And you go, man, that's Jesus. <laughs> no, it's, it's imagery. And this imagery of the new Jerusalem is, is a way of capturing all of God's promises for the future. He's saying that all of God's promises for his whole creation, they're all going to come true. It's going to be, it's going to be like that. Not actually that. So this is why there's a word of comfort and hope for you and me as Christians. Because we're still waiting for this fantastic reality when all of God's promises, all of his covenants are finally fulfilled in our experience. And it's going to happen when the Lord Jesus comes back. And it's going to happen for those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, as John just said there in Revelation chapter 21. That's why there's comfort 
and hope here for all of us, no matter what, no matter what mess you experience in life, whether it's global, ecological crisis, or personal suffering, sadness, death. Whatever scale of the crisis in your life, or the tragedy in your life, there is hope in these words of promise that God is going to fulfil all of his plans for those whose names are written in the land book of life. That's why, friends, we have good news to share. Because only in this message is there fulsome salvation for God's creatures. Okay, let me leave us in prayer, and then we'll go back to the Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great and precious promises grounded in the work, the death and the resurrection and the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that by grace and through faith our names can be written in his book. And so we pray, Father, that you might write your truth and your hope deep into our hearts and minds so that we might live with joy in the mess of this life with sure hope that you're going to fulfil all your good purposes in your good time. Preserve us in faith and obedience till that day and speed is coming, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love to get your communication cards.